and welcome to the JSGC Policy Podcast. We research policy topics within the Commonwealth and discuss them in our podcast. Today's episode will focus on training mandates in education. Thanks for joining us. I'm Susan Elder. Today I'm here with our Executive Director here at Joint State, Glenn Pasowitz. Hello, Susan. Our project manager is Helen Congena. So welcome, Helen, and thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you could be on the show today. Glenn, can you give us a little bit of background about H.R. 163? The report, Training Mandates on Pennsylvania Public School Entities, resulted from House Resolution 163 of 2022, which was sponsored by Representative Ryan McKenzie. It directed the commission to appoint an advisory committee to study and report on federal and state training mandates that are directed toward public school entities in Pennsylvania and make recommendations for reducing the burdensome and redundant mandates that they face. The advisory committee consisted of a variety of stakeholders from the school systems, and you'll hear more about that later as we get more involved with the podcast. Thanks for that overview, Glenn. So, Helen. Can you give us an initial sense of what constitutes a training mandate? How did you categorize training mandates? This is a very good start, Susan. Obviously, one of the crucial questions posed by the resolution is what constitutes a training mandate. It is indeed imperative to find a proper definition to determine the scope and the exact nature of the mandate schools need to handle. Mandatory training is usually understood as training that has been deemed essential for an organization to ensure it is meeting required policy and regulatory standards. The term mandatory training is often used interchangeably with compliance. In the area of public education, most training mandates are intended to enhance the quality of education, student achievement, health, safety, and wellness accountability, transparency, and the efficient expenditure of taxpayer money. The way it works in Pennsylvania and in other states is that most of the mandates are issued by the state, similar to other states, Pennsylvania public school entities, including school districts, intermediate units, career and technical centers, charter schools, must comply with a variety of state mandates related to training that employees as well as third-party vendors in several areas are required to fulfill. Most of these mandates come from federal guidelines. In this country, the regulation and administration of education is primarily a state and local responsibility. However, federal statutes and regulations establish certain standards in vital areas, such as protecting the rights of children with disabilities, safeguarding unimpeded access to class attendance and full participation for homeless students, for example, facilitating the maintenance of safe and healthy school nutrition programs and school transportation, and others. Federal statutes mostly provide broad, general guidelines outlining basic training requirements, but leaving specifics to the states. It's important to understand that as the primary role of the federal government is to support state and local education agencies through funding and guidance, federal funding is usually contingent upon 
meeting certain requirements or conditions. Many federal requirements may not be mandatory in the technical sense, but in practice they are. When schools rely on federal funding for their programs and services, and this funding is contingent on certain federal requirements, these requirements are effectively mandates, and they will be considered as such for the purposes of this report. This is the approach we agreed within the Joint State Government Commission team that prepared this report, and the advisory committee members were unanimous as well. What happens based on those federal guidelines is that state legislatures determine specific training requirements for teachers, administrators, and other public school employees. Then further on, school boards issue their policies implementing the mandates issued by the state. So we have a kind of a ladder from more general guidelines issued by the federal to the state, preparing actual statutes that will be based for mandatory training and to specific school boards establishing their own policies to implement them. One of the worthwhile things is that when you say education mandates, many people's brains necessarily go to teachers have to do coursework on an ongoing basis to remain certified. But after hearing you talk about it just a little bit, it seems like it's more than that. So can you discuss what kind of topics you addressed? It is true. Teachers and administrators and other school employees, they do need to continue their training. It is important, however, to realize that this continuing education embraces different areas. A big part of it is continuing education in your field, in your subject matter, and in teaching techniques. Mandatory training is a little bit different. It usually refers to aspects like school policies and procedures, safety, nutrition, how you would act in an emergency situation. Obviously, they are also very important, but they are different. In fact, according to Act 48, All teachers must have 180 hours of continuing education in their subject and general issues. Mandatory training is different than that. And in fact, some school leaders feel that mandatory training requirements have become so numerous that they tend to almost push continuing education directly connected with the teacher's specialty, aside as teachers only have so much time, actually so little time, that having to deal with both kinds of training can become quite burdensome. So, Helen, can you tell us about the composition of the advisory committee and maybe get into what the process of meeting with them and discussing was like and and how well they got along with each other around the table? Actually, they got along with each other very well. So that in itself was certainly useful. Seriously, the advisory committee, as you have already mentioned at the beginning, Glenn, included a variety of people involved in Pennsylvania education. Its members included designee of the Secretary of Education, in this case, Dr. Carrie Rowe, It is important that we have representatives of several Pennsylvania school associations and coalitions really representing a wide range of Pennsylvania educators. 
They were the Pennsylvania School Boards Association, PSBA, the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators, the Pennsylvania State Education Association, the Pennsylvania Principals Association, the Pennsylvania Association of Intermediate Units, the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools. We had Pennsylvania certified teacher, a young, very enthusiastic teacher who managed to participate actively in spite of her very heavy load of work and family. Happy when she had a baby during the advisory committee work, but even that didn't prevent her from participating actively. We had a parent of a child attending a public school in the Commonwealth. And I must say that this advisory committee brought wonderful, really invaluable experience. We had two active superintendents, another very experienced person who used to be a superintendent and is now the executive director of the Pennsylvania Principals Association, Dr. Eric Ashbuck. The other two superintendents, Dr. Jay Burkhart and Mr. Andrew Patagier, were very, very active in our work. Each of the advisory committee members brought us their expertise. For example, Mrs. Heather Masshart, Director of Policy Services from PSBA, had a lot of experience working with statutory issues in particular and was extremely helpful. Mrs. Judith Petruzzi, Director of Education Services from the Pennsylvania State Education Association, brought us data that would otherwise be unavailable. We had presentations from Mr. Pataki and his colleague, Mrs. Maria Winkler, administrative assistant from the Brandywine Heights Area School District, who is basically responsible for running the training education tracking system. The reason I'm mentioning all of them in detail is because they each brought a lot of valuable information. We had very open and productive discussions. They were not necessarily agreeing on every single item every time, but we were always able to reach a conclusion that included everyone. I must say that we had several meetings which were very, very well attended, and we are grateful for them to finding the time. They are all very busy people. All our meetings were very productive, and I am pleased to say that the recommendations that we arrived at at the end were unanimous, which is certainly very important. So I think this advisory committee has really done a very good work and represented a very broad perspective of Pennsylvania educators. It sounds like you had really great advisory committee participation, Helen. House Resolution 163 specifically asked whether education training mandates are burdensome and redundant. As you were doing your research, did you find that to be the case? If I have to give a simple answer, I would say burdensome, yes, redundant, not really. What I mean is that there were no duplicative mandates. That's what people were concerned about. There sometimes may be an impression of that because you see similar mandates coming from the federal 
guidelines and state and then maybe even school board policies, but they are not duplicative. They are just implementing the federal guidelines into state statutes and school board policies, which is what we were trying to show. Redundant is really a serious question. Mandatory training usually refers to areas that are really critical for schools, such as school safety, such as prevention of child abuse, such as proper handling of emergencies. Nobody is actually debating whether you need to train people in these areas. You do. The question is whether it becomes so much that it is very hard for schools to manage, and it actually causes some conscious or self-conscious protest on the part of the teachers and other school employees because they feel overwhelmed. And frankly, there are areas where it's not all up to training. You know, sometimes something horrible happens at schools and the legislators respond with wonderful intents. And they always include training in any statute they issue related to this problem. But training is not necessarily the only or even the correct response. It's not always up to learning. Sometimes there are objective causes that need to be addressed. It's not just the lack of training. It's something else that is the problem. And it would be wonderful if the legislators thoughtfully selected the very approach to address whatever problem they're facing. Are the training mandates burdensome? Yes, they are. Just because there are so many of them. There's layering of these mandates. Even developing them and implementing them and tracking them and reporting them puts a heavy burden on school entities. In our report, we describe in detail the process of implementation. I think it's important for the legislators to be aware of that, to see what it actually amounts to for a specific school entity, mostly school district, but others as well. So it does become burdensome, even though, I mean, it's mandatory because it's necessary in many cases. If you look just at the size of the chapters simply listing the state mandates, and we included a table at the end to make it more manageable, you will see that there's an awful lot to do, and the process is not easy. It is time-consuming, it is logistically challenging, and it is certainly financially burdensome as well. There is one program, however, Pennsylvania, as well as some other states, has traditionally provided limited and temporary mandate waiver programs that enable school entities to apply for waivers if they can show that a waiver will help them to improve instructional programs or operate more efficiently and more economically. It's probably worth mentioning that a proposed amendment to this program is presented in Senate Bill Number 569, session of 2023, which was referred to the Senate Education Committee. Educators find the program helpful, but its impact is limited due to the narrow scope of possible waivers. So in looking at all of the different types of mandates and viewing the whole comprehensive list of them, Did the advisory committee learn anything about the effectiveness of training mandates? The effectiveness of training mandates was not our immediate subject, but we did raise this question. 
and it can be looked at from various perspectives. One would be whether educators themselves feel that they learn a lot. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Some of them said that particular training courses may be repeated from year to year and they basically know what they're going to hear before they even start. So this can hardly be called effective time spending, especially for people like these. On the other hand, there are obviously useful things that they learn. And from the joint state perspective shared by some of the advisory committee members, it's very important to keep in mind both subjective and objective effectiveness of training mandates. Obviously, the Joint State Government Commission team was doing uh, our own research as well. We really couldn't see any attempt to check, and it's not just in Pennsylvania, it's anywhere, to check the effectiveness of training mandates, same as we would normally use for any other program that taxpayers' money is going to. It's not easy to check, probably, but there must be ways to do that. If I may, I would like to give you one example. One of the widely spread training mandates deals with child sexual abuse. And you know that in Pennsylvania in particular, a series of requirements was generated after the big scandal, the Sandusky affair, which was absolutely horrible. And it's understandable that the legislators want to respond strongly because child abuse is one of the ugliest and most horrible crimes. So as you know, teachers along with doctors and social workers and others are mandatory reporters now. They have to report of any suspicion of child abuse. What happens, however, is that this legislature really increased the number of reports. The question is how many of these reports are valid. And I saw a report showing that in Pennsylvania from 2015 to 2019, 24 out of 25 children referred to child protective services by education professionals, had their cases dismissed by caseworkers as unsubstantiated. Just think about it. That means only one out of 25 was recognized as the actual case of child abuse. And okay, they were eventually considered unsubstantiated, but that was only after a very intrusive investigation into the families of those children. Usually these are black and brown families. Usually these are poor families. This is extremely oppressive and really very hard on the families. So this tiny percentage of substantiated reports was striking to me, and it certainly deserves further attention. Now, to what degree it is due to the exaggerated or unclear requirements in the statute itself, and to what degree it is due to imperfect training, is a question that needs to be investigated, but someone needs to look into this. One of the key terms in the statute is reasonable suspicion. And Dr. Benjamin Levy, a pediatrician and former director of the Center for the Protection of Children, who was actually actively involved in in that original task force dealing with child abuse, 
says that training programs typically lack a clear explanation of the reasonable suspicion of abuse that should trigger a report. And Dr. Levy is talking about doctors, but of course it's the same about teachers. If you increase mandatory reporting and you don't make sure that mandated reporters know what to report and what not to report, you've just made the problem worse. I am actually glad that now there is more awareness of this issue. So we do think, and it is one of the advisory committee recommendations, that there should be more effort to assess the effectiveness of mandates, both by the participants and by some objective criteria. So with the mandates, I can imagine that this would get expensive for the school entities and such to try to follow through. Was there any discussion about the fiscal impact of training mandates on the schools? There was. Certainly, monetary issues also came into play. It's actually not easy to calculate the exact costs. I can give you two measurements that we were able to come up with with the advisory committee. One is an estimate prepared by Pennsylvania State Education Association and shared with the advisory committee of the cost to implement just the new Act 55 requirement of three hours of training annually. According to them, just that mandate will exceed $7 million. Another number that is what schools actually spend on special programs that allow them to track and report mandatory training. These would cost from five to 10,000 a year. These programs are very useful because such companies as Vector Solutions, which many of the school districts use in Pennsylvania, they will prepare the courses. They are responsive to the legislation coming out. They will track training for school entities, which is very important. So schools, entities don't feel they're wasting this money. They find the services useful, but five to $10,000 is a lot of money. And I want to point out that the burden is certainly much higher on smaller districts in many ways, partly because they don't have that amount of money. Logistically, it's very hard for them because they have much smaller stuff. So if they have to send their teachers to mandatory training, it's much harder for them to find someone to replace them. If the school administrator is gone, his associate doesn't have as many other employees to help him. So it's a heavier burden on smaller districts. And I must say that reporting and tracking and implementing mandatory training has become so extensive that some schools actually have a special employee assigned to track and report training. In the past, training mandates were not even based on any monetary support from the legislature. These days, the legislators tend to give some money to allow school entities to implement mandatory training and some agencies such as the Pennsylvania Department on Crime and Delinquency to develop and offer mandatory training in their area. 
So there is an understanding that there needs to be some financial support accompanying mandatory training, but it still remains a problem. The advisory committee recommended that the current training hours requirement be changed to content requirement. Can you explain how that would work and some of the benefits of that kind of approach? That was actually a crucial request on the part of many advisory committee members. They feel the time requirement most restrictive and most burdensome. They argue that it doesn't matter if a teacher attended, say, a day of training or just turned on Zoom at home and claims to have listened to a particular course, that what matters is that he learns the things that need to be learned. So if the statute should just delineate the skills and information that should come up for this kind of training, they feel that it would give school entities and individual teachers more flexibility and would actually be more useful. So that was one of the recommendations that was really most important for the advisory committee members. Additionally, if this content was developed by the departments specializing in a particular area, I have already mentioned PCCD, sometimes it's the Department of Health, the content itself should probably be better in this case. It would be more relevant, it would be better validated, and it would be up to date because, as you know, in areas, say, such as drugs or security, things change very quickly. By the way, a unanimous recommendation of the advisory committee members was to give more time to school entities to get ready for implementing a particular mandate. So they agreed on one year. So one of the recommendations involves creation of a Pennsylvania School Employees Professional Development Council. So what's the thought process behind that? Are there some idea about benefits that could come from the creation of that? The advisory committee members felt that the whole issue of training mandates need to have a generalized approach, that there should be a general thought process that would come in whenever the legislators are considering of implementing a new training mandate. And we thought that if there were an agency, an organization that would handle various aspects of mandatory training, it would be beneficial. A couple of other states have considered creating an agency like the one we are proposing in this report. So this isn't just Pennsylvania. Uh, By the way, you might have mentioned that there is a long, long chapter on mandatory training in other states. We felt it was important for Pennsylvania legislators to see how different or similar Pennsylvania is to other states. And they can tell you right away that Pennsylvania is not an outlier. Basically, what we do, most other states do. It's not that our educators are especially overburdened and others are not. However, we also looked at how other states tried to address the challenges of mandatory training. Connecticut, for example, thought of an agency similar to ours. So if this Pennsylvania School Employees Professional Development Council 
is created, it will be able to serve as a long-term solution for ongoing review and modification of past and future legislation. The Council's role would be to review and provide feedback on legislation that proposes any new trainings for certified and non-certified educators. The Independent Council would represent a cross-section of stakeholders and the report lists organizations that could be represented. It would be closely connected with the General Assembly because the advisory committee suggests that the chairperson and minority chairperson of the Education Committee of the Senate and the chairperson and minority chairperson of the Education Committee of the House of Representatives should also be members of the Council to ensure a nonpartisan approach and close continuous communication between the Council and the General Assembly. The Council would implement a review protocol to identify the possible implications and potential burdens to school entities for any proposed future statute. That would include identifying the real cost in personnel, time, resources, finances, and materials to school entities and the feasibility to achieve the mandate within the time frame specified, assessing the priority of the training and determining the optimal duration and frequency of the training. What a wonderfully detailed explanation of the report, Helen. Listeners, if you'd like to get some more of the background information and the research that went into this report, you will find that at our website. The link to our website is in the show notes. The music in our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thanks for listening. <laughs>